Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Rothko Chapel. To help our guests have a better idea of who you are, we are not going to do personal introductions tonight. But I want to ask a question. How many of you are here in the Rothko Chapel for the first time? Can we see a show of hands? Well, to you in particular, I want to say welcome. And my hope is that you'll find uh, this to be a place that you will come more and more often. Just a little quick background. The chapel is open every day of the year, 365 days of the year, 10 to 6. Uh, it's a place for gathering, for meditation, evening like tonight, programming. We have concerts during the year. Uh, and uh, what I find, if you're so immersed in this urban environment, it's a nice break from the cacophony of the city at about any time of the day or evening. So welcome. And I particularly want to welcome our Burundian friends here from, from Houston. It's, it's just great to have you here and have you part of uh, the program this evening. Uh, one thing I would ask is that if you have a cell phone, if you don't mind uh, silencing your phone, uh, that's very helpful and refrain from taking pictures, primarily because it helps us to kind of keep building that sense of community we'd like to build uh, during a program here at the Rothko Chapel. So one other very important note, I don't, yes, I want to say special thanks to my colleague, um, Ashley Clemmer, who's the Director of Program and Engagement here at the chapel, and her colleague, Kelly Johnson, who's running around, that really did a lot of the work for, for this evening's uh, conversation. Thank you uh, for all that help. <clears throat> so let me um, set the scene for this evening. If we think back 37 years ago, we remember the life, legacy, and memory of Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was assassinated while celebrating Mass at the chapel at the Hospital de la Divina Providencia in San Salvador, El Salvador, at a time in El Salvador when the rule of law was replaced by martial law, death squads, and military courts. At great risk, Archbishop Romero stood up for the poor and marginalized and challenged the Salvadoran government, including reaching out to then President Jimmy Carter, asking that the United States cease giving military aid to the government. Through his actions, Archbishop Romero was murdered on March 23, 1980. But his life, thankfully, has left an impact that continues to grow and inspire activists working diligently toward a world where violence, poverty, and justice are no more. It is with this background that we gather this evening for tonight's program. The Rothko Chapel 2017 Oscar Romero Award continues the focus of the chapel's spring symposium on criminal justice reform and ending mass incarceration. And the award will be given on November 12th to Burundian human rights leader Pierre Claver Bonimpa and Houstonian criminal justice reformer Catherine Griffin Grillon. Tonight, we focus on the context for Mr. Bonimpa's work, as Burundi is not as well known or necessarily a household name for us, many of us here in Houston. But at the same time, Houston is the home to one of the largest number of Burundian immigrants, refugees, citizens, guests, and visitors than anywhere else in the United States. Our hope is that through this program, such as this one, we strengthen our ties with our Burundian neighbors here at home, as well as to Burundians in country who struggle to live in a very difficult social and political reality. 
Our goals also include better understanding of how the United States should frame its foreign policy and development goals in support of the people of Burundi, as well as the larger region of East Africa. Now to help us with this critical, and I would say monumental work, you only have about an hour and a half to get all that in, so we are really fortunate to have with us experts who know well the historical context and contemporary situation in Burundi. It's my honor this evening to introduce our presenters in the order of their presentation, as well as tonight's moderator. While their bios are in the program, let me lift up a few key aspects about each of them. First, Tony Tate began working with the Fund for Global Human Rights as a program officer for the Sub-Saharan Africa office in October 2010. He currently oversees the fund's grant-making programs in Burundi, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Uganda. His professional career also includes positions with Unbound Philanthropy, Human Rights Watch, as their in-country research in Burundi, United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Comoros Islands. He is a member of the Advisory Committee of the Children's Rights Division of Human Rights Watch and is fluent in French and conversant in Swahili. Can you help me welcome Tony Tate? Our second presenter will be uh, former Ambassador Robert Kruger, who is a former U.S. Representative and Senator from Texas and served as Ambassador on three occasions to Mexico, Burundi, and Botswana. He was also U.S. Special Representative to the Southern African Development Community. During his service in Burundi, Kruger's outspokenness on human rights issues provoked an ambush of his convoy in which two persons were killed and eight grievously wounded. The book From Bloodshed to Hope in Burundi by Ambassador Kruger and his wife Kathleen Tobin Kruger was published in 2007 by University of Texas Press and it focused on their eyewitness accounts of the genocide in Burundi that the international community largely ignored and then the subsequent efforts of building a more just society in Burundi. Kruger holds a PhD from Oxford University and served as professor of English and as vice provost, dean of arts and sciences at Duke University. He currently lives with his family in New Braunfels, Texas. Could you help us rep uh, welcome? Ambassador Kruger. Our third speaker this evening is Methode Alain Boutouilly, who was born and raised in, in Burundi. Boutouilly came to U.S. in July of 1971 on a Fulbright scholarship to pursue his studies at UCLA. In April 1972, two months before he was to return home, Selective genocide started in Burundi. The U.S. State Department renewed his scholarship and he completed an MA and a PhD in French and African Studies at UCLA. He is currently a family wellness instructor and training specialist in Houston at the Alliance for Multicultural Service, Community Service, which includes cultural orientation, mentoring and vocational ESL, and addressing post-trauma and emotional upheaval. Welcome to the chapel. And Dr. Kerry Ward is our moderator for this evening's program. 
Dr. Ward is a professor of history at Rice University, whose major areas of research include imperialism and colonialism, comparative slavery, and modern human trafficking. She is widely published and directs the African Studies Program and co-directs the Minor in Museums and Cultural Heritage at Rice. Her current research is on the British suppression of the maritime slave trade in the Indian Ocean during the Emancipation Era and on the long history of unfree maritime labor. Would you help me welcome Dr. Ward? And with that, I'm gonna turn the program over to Dr. Ward, who will explain this evening tonight's format and the way that you can participate uh, later on this evening. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, thank you, David. I'd like to welcome everyone to tonight's Rothko Chapel's Oscar Romero Award event. Um, the format for tonight's program consists of a 15-minute presentation by each of our speakers, followed by a moderated conversation, and that is my role. My role is to help keep the panel presentation flowing and to moderate your questions, which are a crucial part of tonight's event for our speakers. So you'll notice that there's a blank card inserted into your printed programs, which you can use to write down questions um, and each panel, as each panelist speaks, as, as questions come to your mind. And you can pass these cards to the center aisle where they'll be collected, and then we will choose some of those for the basis of discussion. Now, unfortunately, we may not have time to answer everybody's questions uh, that we gather for tonight's discussion, but uh, I'm sure our panelists would be delighted to talk to you after the event, after the formal end of the event, um, during the reception time. So, without further delay, um, I would like to invite uh, Mr. Tony Tate um, to, uh, to give his talk. And tonight's um, panel the title of which is Silencing Opposition. Uh, Mr. Tate's address is going to remind us that although the current regime in Burundi has attempted to silence activists, it's been unable to completely silence demonstrations by ordinary Burundians who have taken to the streets in protest. Mr. Tate is going to help us to understand these current events in Burundi. Thank you, Tony. Great, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to start this evening by uh, thanking the Rothko Chapel, uh, both for including me in this event, um, but also for hosting an event on Burundi. Um, it's a country, although many in this room may know well, it's not known very well in the United States. Um, it's a country with a tragic history that you'll hear about this evening. Um, it's also a country with some courageous uh, and wonderful people, so it's a real pleasure to be part of this panel this evening. Um, I also want to say it's humbling to be speaking about Burundi in an audience where there are so many Burundians present um, who know this history well and probably could do a better job than I could. Um, I thought I would start tonight uh, by trying to give a little context of the current situation. Um, and for that, I want to begin in April of 2015. Um, because in April in 2015 is when the president of Burundi, Pierre Kurunziza, uh, announced officially uh, that he would run for a third term in office. Um, and upon this announcement, um, it created a massive um, mobilization of the population, demonstration uh, against his seeking a third term. 
to provide just a bit of context on that, uh, there are two main documents uh, that govern uh, the laws and the peace in Burundi. One is the Constitution. Uh, the other is what's called the Arusha Peace Accords. Um, so to start with the latter, the peace accords were the documents uh, that were signed uh, by warring parties over time that brought an end to the civil war in the 1990s. Um, and in that document uh, that was agreed by the various sides, a president could serve but two terms. Now in the constitution, uh, the language is similar uh, with the adage that uh, a president can serve two terms by uh, universal suffrage. And so the, president, the current president, Kurenziza, uh, first tried in 2013 and 2014 uh, to amend the Constitution uh, by, by um, getting an amendment through uh, the Congress um, that failed by one vote. So he was unable to do that uh, through the legislative process, um, but then challenged um, the interpretation of the Constitution in the Supreme Court um, who found that because he had been elected, um, in, he had been indirectly elected in his first term, in fact, he did have the authorization, according to the Constitution, to run for this controversial third term, uh, which again uh, is what sparked off uh, the demonstrations unrest uh, that has continued since April 2015, um, and clearly violates the letter and spirit of the Arusha Accords, and at least the spirit of the Constitution, I would argue. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is this ruling by the Supreme Court, uh, depending on how you feel about the interpretation, nonetheless um, underlies uh, the lack of independence, I believe, by the judiciary in Burundi today, uh, which I'll return to in just a bit. But I think this, um, this lack of independence on the parts of the other branches of government uh, is what's enabling the government to do uh, much of its uh, legal and non-legal means to silence critical voices and to silence the opposition. So what happened in the days following April 2015 uh, were largely initially peaceful demonstrations. You had a large amounts of, of course, opposition uh, politicians uh, who were against him running for a third term, um, civil society actors, people from the church, who felt that, uh, for whatever reason, it was best to have a change in government and to allow democracy to flourish in Burundi. And key individuals from civil society, including uh, Pierre Claver Bonimpa, who will be honored next week by the Rothko Chapel, uh, intervened to try to ensure uh, negotiations between uh, crowds that were becoming increasingly uh, vocal and the police and the military that were brought in to uh, control them uh, the peaceful demonstrations were allowed to happen, and in fact, continued for a number of days. Uh, moving into the month of May 2015, the president left the country briefly, um, and during the time he was away, army officers uh, staged an attempted coup d'etat, uh, which then brought, brought about fighting in downtown Bujumbura, the capital of Burundi. Um, the coup failed. Uh, those loyal in the army to the president prevailed, um, and that really changed uh, the context dramatically. Uh, the president came back, um, demonstrations became increasingly bloody and dangerous, a number of demonstrators were killed, um, and this started off a massive exodus of Burundians into exile. Uh, Burundians who were affiliated with the demonstrations, Burundians who represent or were faithful party members of opposition, um, of opposition parties, members of civil society, persons who were willing to speak out um, from the judiciary, uh, from the police, 
uh, anyone who was looking to stop a third term in office or criticize the killings that were now underway in the country. Um, and that wave, that exodus of Burundians has continued. Presently, there's more than 400,000 uh, Burundians in exile, in, um, uh, predominantly in Tanzania, neighboring Tanzania, but also a significant number in Rwanda, uh, smaller numbers in Uganda, uh, Eastern Congo, and Zambia. Um, so what happened was those demonstrations were put down. Uh, you had a number of people fleeing, voices silenced, um, and the president went ahead with the elections. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, he won. These were elections that were largely boycotted by the opposition. Um, he, his ruling party managed to get large majorities in uh, both houses of uh, the, uh, the legislature. Um, and so now you have a uh, situation, um, and those, sorry, those elections were in July and August of 2015. And so uh, currently you have a situation where uh, the government has all three branches, all three branches of the government are dominated by those who are loyal to the party uh, and have been able to pass a number of restrictions, legal restrictions on civil society, on restricting uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of association. Um, as well as um, continue to operate um, above the law uh, with little fear of uh, prosecution or redress um, because primarily the judicial system is not independent um, and those who might not agree are largely afraid to speak out. Um, in the months following the elections in the summer, our summer of 2015, uh, you, you had some armed attacks by groups who were opposed to the government, including a large um, attack in December on a number of army bases, uh, which was met with uh, hostile and bloody um, uh, acts of retribution on the part of the military, on the part of the police, and also on the part of a youth militia known as the Imbonerakure. This is a youth militia that is loyal to the ruling party, um, and is largely responsible today for much of the unrest and a lot of the fear that's pervasive throughout the country. Um, I, I want to focus on a few groups, including... Can everyone hear me okay? Sorry. We're, ha we're having technical difficulties. Please stand by. Um, I want to focus on a few groups who have really been silenced. And, of course, this includes human rights defenders, um, many of whom have fled the country, such as uh, Pierre Clavé Bonimpa, who will be honored next week. Um, his case is dramatic, but not atypical. Um, he was uh, almost brutally assassinated in August of 2015. He narrowly escaped death. Um, members of his family were killed, um, but he faced threats and, and difficulties in the months leading up to that time. He had been arrested uh, in 2014. Um, and his fate, unfortunately, is not un dissimilar from uh, many other outspoken human rights activists who find themselves today in Rwanda and Bur uh, uh, Belgium. Journalists have suffered the same fate. Uh, following the, um, the attempted coup d'etat, a number of radio stations in Bujumbura, and radio is the, the means by which uh, the vast majority of Burundians receive their news in the country, uh, were attacked. Uh, have not been uh, diffusing since then, have not been allowed to reoperate, such that uh, information is very tightly controlled by the government today inside the country. Uh, you have the government-sponsored radio station and another one that's loyal to them, um, and a few smaller community, community radio stations that are allowed to broadcast, um, but not on messages of politics or uh, certainly uh, messages that go against the ruling party. Um, and finally, you've had, um, as I alluded to earlier, justices who have fled, Supreme Court justices who have fled, 
Uh, you had members of the elect electoral body who have fled. Um, a large majority of uh, those who are opposed to the regime or those who simply believe in democracy um, who have fled the country, meaning that there's very little opposition left uh, inside Burundi. I would say that many of the acts of the government uh, were quite overt in 2015, um, and that is, I think that pattern has somewhat changed uh, since 2016 to today. Um, rather than killings openly and overtly in the streets, uh, what the government is doing is often what they call uh, in the country Kamwe Kamwe, which basically means one by one. Uh, individuals will be taken in the evening, sometimes from their home, uh, by unknown persons, uh, abducted, often their whereabouts are still unknown, it's presumed many are killed, um, some are taken to clandestine um, incarceration, uh, places of incarceration, uh, brutally tortured, um, and so it's, it's this continued targeting of individuals uh, that, that creates both a climate of fear and also silencing of effective opposition in the country. Um, I just want to uh, close by just saying a few things. I was fortunate enough to be in Burundi in September, um, and I have to say that despite this rather bleak picture, uh, there are still a number of individuals who believe uh, in democracy, who believe in human rights, they're not as outspoken as they once were, but they're still doing incredibly important work. Um, it's a t testament, I think, to their bravery and courage. Um, and often, these are the same individuals that are helping to get uh, credible human rights information out of the country, both to those in the diaspora and to the international community. Um, the government has really tried to uh, come up with, a, a, I would say, a propaganda that is completely separate from the reality on the ground. Uh, including uh, suggesting that Burundi is a safe place that everyone should return to. Um, and this contradicts uh, facts and reports and, and, and press that's put out by Burundian activists, that's put out by the UN, that's put out by the US, uh, that's put out by the European Union, uh, and groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Um, and the government's position has been um, you know, these people are enemies of the state, they're working in collusion, it's not credible information, but it's clear the record shows otherwise. Mm. Um, so let me close there. I hope that gives you a little context of the present situation in Burundi, and I look forward to hearing uh, from the ambassador and from uh, Mwalimu about their experiences in the past. Sorry. Thanks very much, Tony. And it, it's a reminder, the mass exodus to, um, mostly to other countries in the region, reminds us that the history uh, of Burundi can't be separated from that regional context. And the Arusha Accords themselves, Arusha in Tanzania, shows just how deeply entwined the histories of this region are um, in the birth of the nations and in the kinds of political, um, the political situations that have emerged in the 20th century. Thank you. Um, so we're going to pass on the, um, the mic, so to speak, uh, to Ambassador Bob Kruger, um, who, as you already know, has written a book from Bloodshed to Hope in Burundi uh, about his experience um, with his wife, uh, co-authored with his wife Kathleen. And they open their book with the line, this is a love story, a story told by a couple who fell in love with a people and their country. And I think that's a really profound statement to remember in the context of the terrible violence that we're hearing about and that um, he and his wife witnessed. So um, without further ado, I'm going to pass on to um, Ambassador Kruger to share his experiences. 
Thank you very much, and I, I feel greatly privileged to be able to talk to a group about Burundi. Uh, if you don't know anything much about Burundi, I can promise you that when the uh, White House called first to offer me an ambassadorship, and how do you get an ambassadorship if you're not in the State Department? Well, you, you lose your race for the U.S. Senate as a Democrat, and then uh, they, so uh, they they phoned, and and uh, I, of course she'll obviously never forget it. But we were celebrating my I married very late, and so we're celebrating my oldest child's fifth birthday. And just as she was about to blow out the candles, the phone rang. My wife went to the phone. She said, came back with her big blue eyes and said, Bob, it's the White House. So I took it in the back, and so they, said, they told me about how they were offering me New Zealand. And the last thing he said was, would you consider Burundi? I said, well, let me think about it 24 hours. And I ran back and told the family. And my brother-in-law said, Burundi, where's Burundi? I said, well, I think I know where it is. And I ran to my Encyclopedia Britannica, which was written in the 1930s. <laughs> but it was, you know, it's a good British encyclopedia, but uh, 24 volumes, whatever it is. But at any rate, the index did not have Burundi, so I raced to the library. And in the old days, it was called Rwanda Urundi. So uh, I now learned where Burundi was. It was where I thought it was, more or less. And, uh, so the next morning I woke and I said, Kathleen, I don't know why, but I, I said, I just feel there's some reason we should go to Burundi and I'd, if you don't mind, I'm gonna forget about New Zealand. There are lots of sheep and so forth, but anyway. <laughs> so I went and it was the greatest experience of my life. So I am uh, greatly indebted to the people of Burundi. And why is it a great experience? Because when people are in need, when they're being slaughtered every day, when they're being killed, when the, when the, the, when the army, the army shoots, the army when I was there, was, which was all Tutsi, the 10% minority controlling group, and the 90% Hutus were the, uh, the peasants. And the army would shoot Hutus the way Texans would shoot jackrabbits for sport. And that's not an exaggeration, because I've seen it, and I've been shot at. Uh, so what do you do if you're a U.S. ambassador uh, in these circumstances? Well, my predecessor, uh, who shall be nameless and who has passed on some time ago at any rate, uh, was there three years and never left the Capitol at all, and never made one report. And when I, before I went back, before I first went to Burundi, I should say, not went back, but when I first went there, Kirundi was not among the 202 languages taught at the State Department, so I couldn't learn it. I had some French, but uh, the only book I could find was written in French, and I bore my way through it, very old book. But I got there, and the two-way trade was $6 million a year. Well, that's Walmart for half a day in Houston or whatever. That's nothing. And there were only 83 Americans in the country. Most of them were missionaries who, by the way, if you have a prejudice against missionaries, which I might have had before I went there, I got rid of my prejudice very fast. There was no group 
that did so much at such personal risk so unselfishly as the missionaries I encountered there. They weren't just trying to, you know, convert people and send them to hell or with a Bible or something. They were ministering in every possible way. So if, if you ever have, in whatever religious group you're part of, people who are willing to engage in that, I would overall recommend it. But uh, at any rate, with two-way trade of no significance with no Americans, I thought, well, what do I do? Well, let's see what I can do to save. In name, Burundi had a democracy in 1995, but in fact, it was totally 10% Tutsi that had controlled for centuries, and the army was 100% Tutsi, controlling the rest of the population. So the 10% population that was Tutsi got 90% of the places in school, and the 90% Hutu got 10%. And so there were only 18 Hutus in university in 1993 when that particular round of genocide began. And I give these statistics because I want you to know that I didn't know it before we went there. None of you is as old as I am, but you would have had no way of knowing it. And nobody gave a damn. Why should they? There's no trade. A few million people. Where, where is it? What's the name of that country? There are human beings there. And I think what we must ask ourselves at all times is, where does my responsibility to people who are suffering immensely begin and end? Does it begin in my house, in my neighborhood, in my city, in my country? Is it only America that matters and it doesn't matter what's happening in the rest of the world? We will hear these attitudes. Just turn on the t CNN tonight, you'll hear it. We hear it all the time. We vote on it. The Russians do too, but we vote. Uh, but uh, these are essential questions, I think, to ask. And in my own case, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to sit around in an office. So I started going into the countryside. And what I saw was just, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm not joking when I talk about people killing for sport. And I, I was able to assist a Burundian family to come to this country. And I can remember, and, and the boys, they came here, and four out of five of them are in university now, or have graduated from university. And they arrived not even speaking English, so hardworking folks, gifted. But uh, one, of them, one of them was sort of tall and lanky and looked more Tutsi, the other was Hutu. And he talked about how when they walked home from school, there were Tutsi youth gangs, the Saint-Jechec and the Saint-Lefette, and they were waiting there with knives to kill people from school when they came by. These are not stories I'm making up. They are stories I have heard. They are things I have seen. And I want to convey that to you because it's very hard for someone sitting in the comfort, whether it's of Rothko Chapel, New Braunfels, Texas, or the White House of the United States, evidently, or many other places to realize that there are people all over the world who are still suffering greatly. And I think we must ask ourselves that question, 
Where do my responsibilities begin and end as a human being? Does it begin in the city of Houston? Does it begin at the national borders? Where does it end? And those are questions, I think, for all of us, and, and no one person can answer it for another. Um, in my own occasion, in my own case, I should say, if you'd said in advance to me, well, you know, are you prepared to go out and stand between soldiers with guns and the people they would attack? I thought, God, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. But when you go there and you realize, I, I mean, I don't want to be too gruel and too, too, but I want to be candid because I want, to, I want you to have a picture of this place just 22 years ago. I mean, I can, I don't know how many stories I could tell, and, I'm, and I mustn't tell too many, but, but I think particularly of one instance in which I went to a rather remote farmhouse, and you know, the parents were slaughtered and I could find their bodies. But then there was a kind of a, a high little cliff of, you know, maybe 20 feet or something. And uh, I looked over it, and there I could see the vultures picking away at the eyes and the body of three dead children whom the army had slaughtered and tossed over for the vultures to have. Where do our obligations begin and end? In my own case, I thought, you know, I looked on the wall of my office and there it said, I, President Bill Clinton said such and such and such to a point as my ambassador plenipotentiary to Burundi, Robert Kruger. Plenipotentiary, my Latin's not very good, but it basically means uh, I have all of his powers. I am his representative and have essentially his powers, whatever powers he has in that country. And so if you represent the most powerful country in the history of the world, and you are representing the president of that country, then if I remain silent, as I may say my predecessors all did, not just the predecessors, all the people working in the State Department, um, but if I remain silent, then who is to speak? I'm presumably at less risk than anybody else. Uh, if they're gonna shoot somebody, they're gonna think twice before they shoot the representative of the president of the United States. Uh, now, they evidently at some point thought they could get away with it, and uh, they did ambush my convoy, and they did slaughter, killed two and, and wounded three in the car in front of me, sent 11 bullet holes through the follow car, one bullet hole, uh, mine, it missed me by about 18 inches. But, uh, and that was, and it was, it was the army. As a matter of fact, the, <laughs> the thing was carried out by the brother-in-law of the head of the army. But I used to go to the head of the army regularly, Colonel Bicobago, and I would, in my limited French, but it's certainly better than, than it would be now, I would say, you know, uh, Colonel Bicobago, uh, here, is, here is what I am being told by the people in such and such a village. And I would always get, ah, Monsieur l'Ambassador, c'est des rumors, ce n'est pas vrai, ce n'est pas vrai, it's not true. So finally, I thought, by God, I'm going to find out for sure. And so I went out more and more. And uh, they did ambush the convoy. And uh, they did 
they did miss. But uh, who was in charge of, there was, it's the only instance I ever had a military protective group, and my good friend Jean-Brien Gendahayo, whose foreign minister said, oh, well, Bob, he wanted me to go with him to his parliamentary victory district. And I said, sure, Jean-Brien, we'll go. And then uh, I said, I did, I did ask, I said, is he safe? And he said, oh yes, I'll get an, I'll get an army escort. That meant that the army could then plan the attack. So he, it was turned over to his, to his brother-in-law, but uh, they missed us. Uh, what I want the United States and the people of the United States to think of is not just to think that the United States is just, needs it to be a protected little island. Uh, I think it was Abraham Lincoln uh, who said that uh, we represented the best hope to the rest of the world in our government. And of course, he also championed the idea that all are created equal, uh, the famous Gettysburg Address, and his speech at the inauguration of his second, second term. A man of extraordinary vision, compassion, understanding, who didn't think that our obligation stopped just between North and South, or even the vast West that had not been yet uh, settled. But he saw us as a country even over a century ago, a century and a half ago essentially, that was going to be viewed by people elsewhere, which of course we are sometimes told um, is the, uh, is, a, is a place of refuge for many. And so I will draw myself to a close at this point, but I want simply for you to realize that I appreciate your being here. I appreciate the fact that Houston has been not a place that turned away people who might not be of the same color, language, etc., as the majority, but a country, a, a city that was accepting, that accepted people from New Orleans and accepted people uh, from Puerto Rico. And I, I'm particularly pleased that uh, your mayor, Bill White, was my legislative assistant when he was 19 in the Congress. And he is, he is not a smart man, he is a genius. He's one of the five most brilliant people I've met in my life. His mind is like that. Uh, he just, he did the world of good for me. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm proud of the attitude he took toward New Orleans of opening the Astrodome. And I was glad that certain other things took place in the Astrodome rather recently. Uh, I, I did not, I, I stayed up late enough to watch. So, Thank you very much for being willing to come here and giving us a chance to talk to you about one of the least known countries in the world, but a country where people matter. Thank you. Thank you. It's very moving to hear um, Ambassador Kruger talking about how he chose 
to speak out and to bear witness when people, including his own colleagues, had remained silent for so long. And I know that in the audience it's, it's easy to get kind of um, really carried away by listening to our speakers, but I just want to encourage you again that our speakers are also here uh, to answer your questions. So we'd really like it if you could, um, if you could think of, of ways to facilitate a, a conversation between all of us, and we would appreciate that. Thank you so much. So, I'm sorry, last one. Finally, um, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Methode Alain Boutoyi, who earned his doctorate at one of the most, as an Africanist trained in African history, at one of the most prestigious African studies programs in the world. His life journey is extraordinary as someone born around the same time as Burundi became an independent nation. He came to the States as one of really the educated elite of his country who sought to contribute to his nation but was unable to return. Uh, Dr. Butoyi wants to share that experience of exile with us. Thank you. Thank you. Where do I begin to tell a story about Burundi? I will just make it short, otherwise uh, nobody would really listen. Um, I will start with independence. I was in seventh grade. I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, and in September, the beginning of the academic year, at the Petit Seminaire de Bujumbura, Kanyosha five kilometers from downtown, downtown. Um, we were told that we were going to dance for the Independence Day. And that was another dance, it's not like jerk or sukus or samba. It is traditional dance with real genuine leopard skin, okay? We had to wear. Uh, guess what? At that time, Burundi was still a kingdom. We had Mwambutsa. Mwambutsa, Bangiri Chengi. I remember dancing for independence. I remember watching the Belgian flag down and the Burundian flag up. At that time, the Burundian flag had in the center, a drum, okay? The drum uh, symbolizes, you know, of course, uh, uh, the king. Why do I mention that? Because that was 62, and a year prior, Louis Guagasore, Prince Louis Guagasore, had been assassinated. He would have been the first prime minister. And why do I mention Louis Guagasore? Louis Guagasore, being a prince, had married a Hutu woman. Because according to tradition in, the, in Burundi kingdom, this is a secret nobody knows, okay? Uh, unlike Rwanda where you had uh, 
to see and the king being just one absolute power. In Burundi, the reason why there was stability in the kingdom, it's because there was uh, a rule, okay? Now, of course, uh, kingship is, was organized by a group of, I mean, it's like an ethnic group, no, it wouldn't be like what we used to call clans, okay? Abiru. I am one of them, and that's why I hold the, that secret. And I wonder why it is today that I mention it. Why? Because today happens to be the 2nd of November, and uh, you know we, we share the same culture, okay? So in the cultural Catholic tradition, the uh, November 1st is All Saints Day. The 2nd of November is when we remember all the dead. Now you, you can take your own conclusion. So we are talking about Louis Guagasori who was assassinated by a rival royal group, royal family that had been um, promoted by the Belgians. Because you see, what I'm trying to get you to, to see is that you have a pop, uh, on the one side, uh, Prince Louis Guagasori, who is, who wants, who wins way, you know, you know, with a majority, of course, many people were for him and so forth. But then, since the party uh, by Hidendereza did not win, uh, guess what? A plot was concocted to assassinate Louis Guagasori. That's how he was killed. Is that of any significance? Of course. At that time, Michombero was prime minister and also minister of the army. We still have the army. Uh, uh, shortly afterwards, 1966, one of the king's sons, Ntare, um, who was going to be Ntare, Charles Ndizeye, uh, you know, took over as the next king. But then, he was a young king. He really didn't have any power because you had Mitro Mbero, a prime minister and also minister of the army. Now keep in mind, everything has to be taken in perspective. Backtracking in 59, in Rwanda, there had been, okay, slaughter, a revolution, a popular revolution. That's how a, a, we had the first republic in Rwanda. So mind you, in those days, in 59, I was old enough to see people uh, fleeing to Burundi and Congo, and some of them uh, were housed in our properties. Uh, and most of, the ki most of the Rwandan youths, you know, went to school in Burundi, now you see 59, 62, 65, and not all of them were just refugees, okay? Because they formed, you know, alliance with the Tutsis and so forth. And at that time, Kaibanda was president of Rwanda. And Michombero used to 
to, to go and, and, you know, of course, he's in a helicopter, he would go and, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, send, he would bring provisions to them, okay, in the forest, because the roads, if you know, the roads in those days, you know, were not really passable by cars and so forth. Now, which brings me to 66. 66, King Fai, you know, entire uh, fifth did not, did not even spend six months as king. He was overthrown by um, Michombero. How did it happen? Michombero came, at that time I was uh, senior of Burasira. Uh, he comes, he is, uh, we hear that he's going to be on a retreat, okay? So he spent one week in, uh, you know, with us, preaching to us. I remember vividly what he said. You, you are going to take care of our souls and we are going to take care of your bodies. Hmm. At that time, of course, nobody understood. Uh, he had come on Friday. So the whole week, the next Friday, he goes back to Bujumbura. Over the weekend, we hear nothing. In the morning, uh, in the, when we were at breakfast, guess what happened? We, we just hear marching, marching sound on the radio. And this priest comes crying, he's a, he's a Tutsi, he's crying, now we are no longer, we no longer have a king. It was amazing. It was almost like surreal. What do you mean? We can no longer say Giramambutsa, which means that's how you would uh, you start a speech, okay? Uh, what are we going to say? It doesn't sound right, okay? Anyway, okay. Ntare was made to flee, okay? He was to come back, I'm doing you know, a backtrack. He was to come back in 1972. 70, 70, Okay, and uh, he was lured. Okay, uh, with the you know with you know with Amin Idi Amin, he was lured to go back to Burundi, uh, and he was jailed. But prior to that, when we talk about the massacres that took place in '72, as early as 1965, Hutus had already been slaughtered. Okay, there had been an uprising apparently, uh, and it had been quelled, you know, and crushed. Michombero was went on a rampage, killing all uh, officers. Uh, any any Hutu office, any of any um, officer rank was assassinated at that time. And then '69, another one, another purge. Uh, at that time, 68, 69, I was at the Ecole Marie Supérieure, and that's where my life begins with America. I was uh, told that I was going to come to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship. Originally, there were four scholarships. They said, okay, right now we're going to number you. Number one, Method Alain Boutoui. Number two, uh, Marie-Rose Nienama. Marie-Rose Nienama was a princess. Marie-Rose was a nun. 
to boot. A religious nun to boot, okay. Now, being a princess, which means the cousin of Ntare V, who, the niece of Mwambutsa, at that time, she was not supposed to come. Let alone method butoi, okay. And that caused a problem. I wasn't going to come if it hadn't been by the, you know, uh, the power of the, the then ambassador, Thomas Melody, who wrote a lengthy letter to, a, to the Ministry of Education, threatening that if I weren't to come, they are going to seize all scholarships, you know, American scholarships. And how I came is another story. Uh, you will, um, probably I will address it in Q&As. Now, um, I've lived here 40 some years and I have enjoyed it. Now, the second part of my uh, presentation uh, is about the community, the Burundian community. The question was um, how the Burundian community deals with the Burundi, the Burundi reality. Uh, the Burundian community in Houston, like other Burundians in the US who are concerned about their country of origin, respect and fully support the rule of law. A good many are supporters of the current governing body. It should be made clear that activism that promotes vigilantism and nullification of state institution is not characteristic of law-abiding Burundians living in America. They are looking forward to become citizens if they haven't been, if they are not yet. As soon as they arrive, they have five years to become citizens and law-abiding uh, citizens. I, for one, know that having lived in the USA for over 45 years, almost a two-generation timeline in typical refugee camp universe. I have had the opportunity to see criminal justice enforced and at times laxed or unenforced. Therefore, if Burundi's legal system is to be changed or amended, that ought to be done not by resorting to breaking the law, but rather by petitioning the government in place in due democratic fashion. I know some nonprofit organizations in Burundi which are used as a front to launder money to extremist groups that seek to overthrow the, uh, the present government. What we need is due process. We need to know the background. The amb Ambassador Kruger has given you a picture of what took place when he was there. That's why I cannot address that issue because I wasn't there. But I was able to go back in 
2013, what I saw was a big change. I saw freedom of speech. I saw people debating willingly, but openly, politics, not being afraid to be Hutu, Tutsi, Twa. By the way, there is, in all that discourse, there is something that is left behind. What about the Hutsi, the Twatsi, the Tsihu, whatever? I'm talking about a country where we don't have clear cut boundaries between those ethnic groups. I will stop here and I will address any uh, questions you might have during the Q&A. Thank you so much, Dr. Potoya. Thank you for um, helping us to understand the longer history of Burundi and that it was a, it was a monarchy um, well before the colonial era and its trajectory as um, a modern state. So um, we are, we're going to open, we're going to start to uh, address the, um, the questions. We're still waiting uh, to gather your question cards together. If you'd please um, send them to the center. Um, there's something else I'd like to end our discussion uh, with Dr. Vitoyi's, uh his homeland. Um, and when he, when he first spoke to me on the phone a few days ago, um, you mentioned, Dr. Patoi, that poetry saved your life. And I think it's, uh, it's moving that we're in, we're in one of the most beautiful um, artistic expressions of, of uh, spirituality in Houston. And I'm hoping that during the question and answers, you will tell us more about how, um, how the arts have helped you to express the, unex the unspeakable and, and your role um, as a poet, personally. Thank you. Um, during the 45 years that I've lived here, at least the very few, the first years, I felt very lonely. Imagine in California feeling lonely. <laughs> yes, you could be surrounded by the most beautiful faces and still feel lonely. I have known the secret strength of depression, but then that was before I knew it was going, it was maybe trauma, post-traumatic. Even if I hadn't been actually in the war, I had suffered by proxy. But anyway, um, I don't know if I can really address that, but poetry was my therapy. So I would go, I remember the very first day on the 29th of April, uh, my professor, that time it was teaching English as a foreign language. This professor comes and says, oh, Method, have you heard about the massive? At that time, I didn't, I didn't even, we didn't have uh, WhatsApp, we didn't have uh, cell phones, <laughs> and I didn't read. What happened? He told me there was massive. So I looked, he gave me the paper. That day, uh, I took my guitar, oops, I had a guitar. I went to Veterans Administration on the, and I played and I cried until 
the what you call it, the, the, the person the, eh, comes and pats me and say, okay, and I would go home. That's the time when I started writing. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, we're going to move towards the uh, moderated conversation, and thank you for those of you who have uh, contributed questions. I'm going to move straight into your questions because um, because we're thrilled that you're participating in this in this discussion. And the first question that we have um, is one from the audience, of course, and that is, can and I'm, I'm addressing this to all of you. Some ad address some of the questions will be addressed to one specific panelist, but this is a this is a general question for all of you. Um, can Burundi progress if the region does not progress also? So what is the regional context for development? And, and given that the porous borders have been part of, the, um, of the, the troubles as well as the potentials of the region, who would like to begin? Um, well, the, I think that, you know, first of all, we never want to give up on progress and that perception, that option and that hope. Um, but you have to begin where you are, and as I said, it is the poorest country in the world, probably still today. I don't know, when, when I left, the average, American, the average Burundian earned $100 a year, 28 cents a day. So, you know, if you have a 5% a year improvement, which would be considered very good, more than even we are told we might get uh, currently in this country. Uh, but uh, that's still very, very tough. You have the long history of, of uh, similarity and therefore and also uh, hostility between Rwanda and Burundi. Uh, you have, if one's candid about it, uh, corrupt governments in many of the African countries. and. In one sense, this shouldn't be all that surprising if there is corruption. Because just think what it would be like if you, as a citizen here, had been told forever not only how inferior you were, but if you had been used by people who may have treated you in the fashion that Hitler and or others would have. I mean, there are, they talk about the benefits of colonialism. I'll tell you. It's hard for me not even to, to, it's hard to avoid four-letter words. It's just, uh, that's not true. There was very, I, I don't mean that it was useless, but there was very little beneficent about colonialism. The countries went there, they looked, they traded countries. Can you imagine trading people? Well, we used to do it 150 years ago, I guess, when we had slaves. But that was a custom of France and Germany and Little old Belgium, little old Belgium, which is about the size of Harris County, little old Belgium controlled an area equal to the, all the states east of the Mississippi. And that's who the King of Belgium was. What did he do? He went in with machine guns against people who had spears. Well, guess who wins that one? If we call killing other people winning. So that's, that's part of the history, and if we don't know that history, we will say, well, why can't there be more progress now? Well, when you have that very high degrees of illiteracy, when you have 
in Burundi, uh, is it, what is it now, about 10 million people or is it more? Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It's more than that? That's their pastime, making yeah. babies. And so... 11. 10, 11. 10 or, 10 or 11. Like one and there were only, one there were 6 million when I was there, so you mm -hmm. can see there's been an, uh, about an 80% increase in just 22 years. So, you know, forgive me, I don't carry any particular church banner, but if, uh, if people can't learn to practice birth control, uh, the opportunities for the future are very limited. If you have, the, if an average family has four, and they have less than half an acre of land, and the economy is almost entirely agricultural, and what you can live on, on your own place, the, the average lifespan when I was there was 42, and it's, I don't know that it's any better now. So all of those things relate to where they are now, but it also relates to the history that, you know, that Western countries in particular have had of subjugation of people on the African continent. I mean, I don't, I damn sure am no defender of slavery here, but what the King of Belgium did was worse than slavery, but they called it beneficent colonialism. So I think we have to put that kind of historical context on if we want to understand what we can do. But we can do something. Uh, we can help. There is, you know, there is more education now. Uh, Hutus get to go to school as well as Tutsi. Uh, there are vastly more people who attend university. I mean, uh, progress is taking place. Uh, I personally think that it's going to be hard for it to continue until people learn to practice uh, different family size, but uh, I don't know that that's just personal, that's mathematical though. I have my take on that also. Um, keep in mind everything happens for a reason. In the uh, starting 65, there was a plan, it's, it was called Simbananiye plan. This Simbananiye plan was, Simbananiye was a Tutsi. Uh, he was Minister of Foreign Affairs, and sometimes they had a double, a double portfolio, but he, the, the plan was to make sure no Hutu kids make it to secondary school. In other words, okay, so imagine from the 60s to the 70s, imagine, so some of the kids are just, you know, street kids or peasants. Okay, uh, but then uh, what I noticed, that's number one. That's something I noticed when I went back. There are so many schools now, okay? I couldn't believe Rugombo, okay, Rugombo. All the kids, I mean, there are schools everywhere. Uh, and you have, um, uh, you have people willing to build their own schools, their own hospitals, and that's really progress to me, okay? Uh, uh, and guess what? What always, you know, you know amazes me is that uh, government, I mean, people in power are so keen on, you know, uh, uh, getting, you know, weapons, weapons, you know, from outside, oh, no, 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 instead of, you know, uh, and of course, there are donors who are willing to, to do that instead of really, you know, uh, 
uh, funneling the, you know, that funding in education and so forth. I am pleased to hear, for instance, uh, there is a famous lady who offered to, to build, um, uh, who can help me from Burundi? Okay, do you know what's her name? Beyonce. Uh, Beyonce, exactly. She donated uh, uh, <laughs> lavatories, <laughs> so to speak, you know. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, making it, making water available, that's what we need. We don't need more weapons. We don't need uh, military people to come to do what? Okay, there was a failed coup, by the way, if you, if you followed, I was going to talk about 2015, there was a failed coup. They are, they are bent on assassinating this popular president. And you can have a say about that. I still like it quiet. Should I add something? Or? I, well, we I, can just, I can just say two things. I yes. mean, I think that on the one hand, if you, you know, in the region, you've got Pakagame in power in Rwanda since 1994, right. uh, with the possibility of staying in power until 2034. You have uh, Yari Museveni in power in Uganda since 1986, uh, who's busy trying to change the constitution to stay in power indefinitely. Um, and in Congo, you have Kabila in power since 2002, seemingly unwilling to relinquish power. So I think if you're in the executive office in Burundi, why do you have to give a power when none of your neighbors do? That's maybe the pessimistic view. On the other hand, you know, it seems to be to me that Canada is making progress despite having a neighbor like the United States. So I think there's optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, you know, in the in the larger region, you also have um, Tanzania and Botswana as being uh, different kinds of um, post-colonial states. So um, Botswana had the great advantage of having only one and a half million people, and the second advantage was their first president was a graduate of Oxford and part of the royal line. And the third great advantage was, which Texans should particularly appreciate, was that right after they got their independence, uh, they found the largest diamond mine in the history of the world. And fortunately, they had a president who didn't say, can I get it for myself? But he said, all of this belongs to all the people. And so, when I was in Botswana as ambassador, any person who wanted to attend university could, and there was no tuition. And they guaranteed that every village would be at least within eight miles of a school, and they would have schools. And he brought in all this education, and they send them to this country, send some people to this country, and pay all of the costs and bring them back. And Botswana is entirely free in the incredible way that we would hardly understand in the United States from governmental and business corruption. Uh, someone told me a story uh, when he first got there in the State Department and he was moving into the house and you know, we were just getting moved in and so he saw some telephone workers or something across the way, some sort of workers, and kind of went over with a little bit of money and said, could you hook me up now? The person looked at it and said, what is this? They didn't even know what a bribe was. Their culture didn't know bribery. And it's incredibly, incredibly, you don't, you know, you know, mind you, they don't have their guns, 
nobody got guns, including the police no got no guns. They're police without guns, they got a, they got a club. And it's an incredibly peaceful country. Thank you. An incredible law abiding. It is. I mean, I think that's part of the larger regional context. And that, that's part of the questioning. Um, I'm trying to gather the questions that you've all submitted into, into groups. And uh, while we've been discussing the regional context, there are two uh, main lines of questioning from the audience. And one of them is to continue um, with the kind of discussion that we've had. But um, the questions are what can uh, the US government um, do? What can, how, can we, uh, how can we request the US government to help um, Burundians? Uh, what is the US involvement um, in Burundi now? Um, how has uh, US civil society uh, helped to intervene? Because that's, that's one way that um, those of us who, who are here can work through um, our institutions in civil society and in the state. So what is the current level of involvement of US at that level in Burundi and, and what are they doing? And is there any military aid to Burundi? So um, perhaps, Tony, because you haven't had a chance to discuss, could you? <laughs> That's a big uh, question. Yeah, and I can probably be corrected on this. Um, you know, my sense is the US government isn't all that interested in Burundi uh, for geos uh, geopolitical reasons. It's not that strategic. Um, so it doesn't receive uh, the military attention um, or other economic benefits that other countries in the region do. Mm. Um, I think in terms of what could be done, um, you have a massive cri refugee crisis of, um, as I alluded to earlier, over 400,000 Burundians in exile uh, who aren't getting enough to eat. Um, so on purely humanitarian grounds, um, you know, ensuring through HGR, through other agencies, sorry, the UN Refugee Agency, or other, you know, relief agencies, including uh, US-based uh, humanitarian relief. Uh, ensuring Burundians inside and outside the country get enough to eat uh, right. should be paramount because uh, this, cuts, this cuts across ethnicity uh, and it, it cuts across both those who are inside the country, uh, so feeding programs inside the country and outside the country. Right. Thank you. Any additions? Any more comments? I would panelists? be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that uh, Burundi government uh, has a contingent of um, Peacekeeping mission, a peacekeeping, a peacekeeping mission in Somalia and elsewhere, and at least Burundi should be credited for that. Okay, uh, the United States, as a government, I think they are in love. They have, they take sizes, and I won't mention names. It is obvious. Okay, you have more. You're wearing Museveni. Uh, in power, I mean, okay. You have Kagame in Rwanda, okay? Eh, eh, give me a break, okay? So please, uh, this is very, very important. Uh, you were asking, the question was, what can the United States do, okay? Well, we have Trump, so we can use either, um, uh, you know, we can use the right channels, you know, talk to your congressman, okay? Because we cannot purposely, ah, by the way, I speak, I have the right uh, to speak because I am a US citizen, okay? So please, don't kick me out. Uh, uh, so I would talk to my congressman, I would say, you know what, you know, if you don't, uh, if you don't say something, 
in favor of my government. No, 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 of course, that would be okay. But anyway, you know how it is. We have to play politics because politics, uh, it's, it means you need to be aware. This is social responsibility, guys, okay? Now we're going back to existentialism. If we are just laxed, okay, because we have our smartphone, that's not good. We need to use a super duper computer to realize that we are all equal. Thank you. I'd like to add one thing to that, and that is uh, we often don't know what our own military is doing, or that is, the general citizens don't. But again, let me be real specific. Paul Kagame, dictator now for 22 years, I believe, is that right? In Rwanda, was educated and trained by the U.S. military, and they gave him training all the way through. And when I sent back cables talking about the slaughter that the Rwandans were carrying on and all of the refugees that it was calling, causing in my country, they didn't want to hear it the State Department because Kagame was their guy and our military liked him. And I'm not making this up. And I, that much I can promise you. And so they continued on for the longest and would pay no attention. Finally, when the rest of the world through TV and other things began, they did. The other great advantage that Kagame had was he spoke English and he made his country learn to speak English. And Americans who were not very noted for learning foreign languages uh, like dealing with people who speak English. So Kagame has gotten a free ride, but now, you know, when he runs for office, he gets 99.7% of the vote. And that three-tenths mm. of one percent who don't get it, you know, they'll probably not stay alive real long because they don't have secret ballots. So, but the U.S. has done nothing about it. And the reason we didn't, and I can tell you because I was there when I couldn't get them to pay any attention to it, and I'm confident it's because our own Pentagon gave banquets honoring probably the worst dictator on the planet. And that's a fact. And, and that's a reminder again of, of our responsibility as citizens to, to, um, to watch our own government and what it does. Um, and that, that leads us to the second line of major questions. So I'm not necessarily, um, yes, sir. Somebody? Um, did you submit your question to the? Okay. My name is Bianca. Did you tell Bill Clinton that? And if you did, 
what did he say? Thank you. I think that's part of the question. So the question is that um, during your time uh, in Burundi, did you tell the president? Uh, well, through good luck I did, and through my own ignorance, but sometimes chance works to your advantage. And that was Bill Clinton's longest lifetime friend was a man named Mac McClarty. They grew up together in Hope, Arkansas. He became chairman of the board of Arkansas, Louisiana Gas. Because of Bill White, I became an energy expert in the Congress that I was considered, and so I, I worked with a man named Mac McClarty when he was chairman of Arkansas Louisiana Gas, and so he then became Clinton's chief of staff, and he was a friend of mine. And so I was so damn naive that I didn't realize these State Department customs, and obviously didn't care a whole lot about them. And uh, so whenever I sent cables back, you're supposed to say, you know, in such and such, this goes to African Affairs section or whatever, but I always slugged it at the top, called it slug, White House for McClarty. Well, that of course infuriated people at the State Department because they didn't know Mac McClarty and I did. It meant that McClarty and the president were learning what I did in this obscure damn country that they didn't, that they wanted to forget about. And so, you know, I will, I will say that Bill Clinton I was one of only two ambassadors, not career officers, whom we appointed to his second assignment, and that was Botswana. But, uh, and he said, you know, I've, I've said enough, but he, he said very kind things about, uh, about my work there. And, uh, and he, he, he wrote, a, wrote an inscription for the book that I wrote and, and said nice things there too. Uh, so once I got to the president, yeah, but the, but the regular state, you know, poor Hillary, they blamed her for, for the protection involved in one of 200 countries when she was Secretary of State, as though the Secretary of State is supposed to know what the request is for an additional guard or two. And that's just crazy. But, you know, that, that sort of thing happens. But yeah, I just, I mean, I was very fortunate because I did know Bill Clinton uh, personally. And he did come to Botswana, and I took Bill and Hillary Clinton around Botswana, which is the best-run country in the world, in, the, in Africa, excuse me. But uh, so he did care, but he didn't know at the start either. Uh, but but I, through pure luck or you know my own case, I think divine synchronicity, I uh, happened to know Mac McClarty. And I happened to be naive enough to inform him, and Mac would inform the president about whatever he cared to, and I was told that, you know, that that, that helped. But I wasn't, I, I never heard directly from the president about it. I just thought, I've got to live with my own conscience. If they don't like what I'm doing, they can pull me out. And ultimately they did, because they, there, was, there were two newspapers that had called for my assassination after the assassination attempt, and they wanted get the job done better, and I still wanted to stay, but they tricked me and pulled me out and, and uh, then gave me a new assignment. Thank you. So. The other main line of questioning uh, for the panelists is um, really what can we do, we've, talk, we've talked about what we can do to pressure the state and uh, make contributions that way, but what are some of the other ways that um, we can do as individuals to either to help Burundian people, either in Burundi 
the, the range of, of interventions that we as individuals might be able to make. Um, what can we do to help? And I think that really does bring us back to, um, back to thinking about uh, the kinds of organizations that um, Pia Clavier Mbonlimpa uh, uh, works for. So um, what, what can individuals do, either to help the Burundian uh, community here in the States or, or those people, um, obviously Burundians, at home? Should I start or? Um, um, actually, um, it starts with working with the community, Burundi community yes. here already. In other words, uh, well, I don't speak for the president, but um, um, I was honored to represent them here. Uh, I think uh, much like what is being done by resettlement agencies, uh, there is, uh, okay, the services rendered by resettlement agencies are limited. In other words, it, it's up to the community to volunteer, you know, to take, to take I mean, uh, we need a lot of centers like after school programs, uh, uh, ESL classes, uh, one can volunteer if you have uh, a church, you can, uh, you can volunteer donating benches or whatever, uh, school supplies, things like that. Uh, it, it helps a lot. And then, of course, uh, there are issues involving, like, you know, uh, okay, I'm a cultural orientation trainer. Uh, among my responsibilities are like, you know, making sure that we have healthcare, hygiene, how to protect yourself from all these colds, okay? Uh, now also, uh, without being condescending, uh, if you have been living for generations in refugee camp, there is a refugee camp mindset. Sometimes things are not readily, you know, uh, palatable or, I mean, understood. Uh, so. Uh, cultural adjustment is an ongoing process, and that's where you, as Americans, you know, come in. And we welcome the way you welcome refugees, and I'm saying it emphatically. Thank you. Tony. Let me just add to that, if I may, that uh, I, I'm so glad for what, uh, what you had to say, and I think it's exactly on, but but I think you need to ask yourself as an individual, to what extent do you feel you might personally, if you're retired or whatever, have time, and would you want to go to the poorest country in the world and you know, be in touch with Burundians here and see what you can do to help? And maybe it is teaching someone how to, how to, to speak a, a new language, or maybe it's taking them some simple uh, scientific information or, uh, you know, Figure out maybe it's maybe it's helping people who run business running businesses there to sh learn uh, easier simple matters of accounting. But uh, I'm I'm sure that if you, you know, I mean don't call me but uh, call call Burundians who, who who are up to date. I'm 20 I'm 22 <laughs> years away and I'm <laughs> uh, but but there's there's a Burundian community here as you know that is a very large and I'm sure that. Uh, if you know, if you really want to help, 
you know, in your own small way, whatever that small way is. I mean, what any of us does is small. Uh, nothing is, is that grand. But if you change one life and make it better, it may be that you can go there and change one or two or three. And you may be able to do it with less effort and in a different kind of way from what it would take to change one or two lives here. So I think you kind of have to look to your own, to your own self and to your own church and our other organizations and just see, uh, because uh, there, there are work, there's work to be done in every area. And, and I, as I say, I thought that the, as far as foreigners went, the missionaries who were there, I mean, it was absolutely mind-boggling to me. And I, if I had any prejudice against missionaries, boy, I lost fast. I mean, this wonderful Dutch missionary that I was, was with who spoke, you know, all these different languages and so forth, so. Thank you so much. And then we'll hand back to um, the concluding remarks, back to um, David. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you very much to our panel. Could we give them a big round of applause? As I said in my introductory remarks, it's really hard to take a lifetime of days and collapse them into 90 minutes. But uh, what you did was important and that in a week from now, a little more than a week from now, we will be gathered back here at 3 p.m. and I invite all of you to be here for the 2017 Oscar Romero Award where we will honor uh, two extraordinary people, including Monsieur Monipa here in this place. Uh, and I think what you've helped us to do is to give us a little bit of context for the world in which he was born into, the world that he cares deeply about, um, the things that are not always very settled. And I think also that really question that the ambassador raised, and that is that question, what is our moral responsibility? And I hope tonight at least one thing we've done is given voice at least some attention and help further our own education about a part of the world, as I said, and I think you all have said, we just don't know a whole lot about. So this is the beginning of an educational process for us. I also hope that you'll stick around for a little bit this evening. We have refreshments out on the plaza. Uh, part of that time is for conversation, to get to know each other better, also to have some time with our guests this evening and we'll talk a little further. Uh, Tony, I want to say um, uh, a particular uh, thanks. I think you probably have come the farthest. And then we'll be going back to Massachusetts over the weekend, stop through D.C., right? Got to go visit the home office. But we'll be back here next weekend uh, with our awardee. So we'll, we'll look forward to having you back here again. And we really appreciate the work over the years with your organization and uh, helping us to expand our understanding of the, the world in which we live in. And that real question about what does it mean to be global uh, people connected to one another? And what is our responsibility as particular US citizens in this time and place? Finally, just a parting word that I was thinking about with our panel tonight, the question that is before us about what are we called to do, question of justice and peace, and the beautiful words of Oscar Romero who said, that, that trajectory, that calling, it is a right and it is a duty. So with that tonight, thank you for coming. Enjoy the refreshments. We will have a program again on Monday evening, setting the context for our award, other awardee, Catherine Guignon, 
And I hope you'll be here for that. And then again, 3 p.m. Sunday, November the 12th. Thank you very much.